0: What we're really talking about in the interviews is, you know, eagerness to learn. You know, we, we, we know they're probably familiar with a few things we do. Are you interested in, in learning TypeScript or Ruby or databases or cloud engineering? And I think it's usually the case where people who are really eager to learn and capable of learning quickly have a track record of doing it. So there's generally lots and lots of giveaways when talking to people or when looking through, you know, their work history or achievements to say, oh, okay, this person learns very
1: quickly. My guest on today's podcast is Chris Aitchison, the CTO of Ferocia and UpBank. I was lucky enough to visit Chris in the UpBank offices and I quickly understood what he meant by the line, culture is expensive. He doesn't just mean fancy offices and a great coffee machine, which they do have, but it's clear that culture requires real investment and a deliberate focus from leadership. We dive into this, as well as ways to build good team balance in the technology space and how to get great outcomes by maximizing autonomy. A lot of my recent podcasts have been focused on hiring in the technology space and speaking to technology leaders. As an engineer, I really like understanding how different technology leaders approach hiring and dealing with the challenges of finding highly technically capable people and never sacrificing building a great culture and a great business. And it's one of the reasons why I love recruiting in this space. If you ever need help with hiring in the digital technology transformation or engineering spaces, please reach out to us as I'd love to see if we can help. My contact details as always are in the show notes. And I really hope that you enjoy the podcast. Thanks again for listening. Thank you so much for joining me today, Chris. Um, It's a pleasure to have you on the podcast.
0: No, thanks, John. It's pleasure
1: to be here. Um, now, I sort of started following the the Up journey through, um, through Judy, uh, who was actually another guest on the podcast in one of the earlier episodes, um, and her sort of understanding and exposure of Up, and, and that's sort of how we connected from there. But um, there's a bit more to the journey, um, and, and I'd love if you could, I guess, give a bit of a background on your sort of journey through Ferocia, which which I'm sure the audience will hear about soon and sort of growing from a small business then to a startup, then to what it is today with Up as well. Um, just sort of, yeah, give us a bit of an understanding of how all that played out.
0: I started at Ferocia around a decade ago. By that time, it already had around uh, 10 employees that had been around for about a year. And the uh, main thing we were focusing on then was... Uh, rebuilding the internet banking platform for Benigo Bank. So our relationship with Benigo Bank started way back then. We focused on that uh, for several years. We were also treating it as a white label product. So building it so that other banks could basically adopt it, reskin it and use it as their own. By about 2016, um, we realized that that wasn't necessarily the direction we wanted to keep going in and I think it became a, a real interesting topic of discussion, what, what, what to do next, what's the next big focus, um, so especially to um, you know, fully utilise the team we had built slowly over that period of time, which we were very proud of. Um, and so uh, I guess through some great um, uh, working through a whole bunch of, of potential um, concerns in this space, our founders and uh, Bendigo Bank, um, came to uh, a way to collaborate on how do we how would we build a digital bank from scratch where um, we've got all of the the traditional banking parts in Bendigo Bank and we've got the experience and app um, built by Ferocia in the cloud and so that was the birth of Up. It was around 2017 when we started um, writing the first line of code for it. Uh, and 2018 and around uh, September October when we we finally launched to the public and I guess you could say the rest is history. I like to think back then it was it was always perceived as this come out of nowhere overnight success you know in 2019, 2020. I always remember thinking it, it takes 10 years to become an overnight success yeah. <laughs>
1: Yeah, uh, yeah. I think that there's so many of those journeys um, where you listen to the people who were involved. Um, and I mean, there's a couple of other businesses, um, Jet Charge is a good one in the electric vehicle space, where all of a sudden you sort of see them everywhere. It's like, oh, these guys have been doing this for a long time, grinding to get to here. Um, so it does definitely feel like that. And I guess, what's it like now that you are I guess running, although it's like a startup feel, um, like a probably like a mid sized business now.
0: Yeah. Medigo Bank acquired Ferocia in 2021. Oh, yeah. And that was uh, a huge, I guess, uh, pivot point for the direction of the company. At the time, we weren't uh, necessarily sure what direction things would take. We were uh, looking into getting venture capital, et cetera, et cetera. But after being acquired by Benigo Bank, I think it was a very clear acknowledgement by the organisation that okay, we don't we don't want to change the way you're working. We want to nurture it, and that I think that was very important and, and smart move. Um, and so we're almost, I guess, a startup within an enterprise, which yeah. I think is a very strong model. I think it's one where. If you've got a large company that uh, definitely focuses on operationalizing things, you know, do everything the same way, have the efficiencies of scale, it sometimes can be difficult to keep that spark of innovation, like how does that happen? So um, we like to think that uh, we can be a vehicle for the whole organization to you know pilot things, test new ideas, we have success in what we're doing and then try to feed it back into larger organization. I think it, it works well for everyone involved.
1: Yeah, I mean, it. Definitely seems that way. Um, it seems like everything's going really well and, and you're right in terms of that internal startup sort of model um, can work. Uh, I think it's almost, it's, it's great in this way that there was this, there's been a collaboration for a period of time um, before the acquisition. So you already understand the ways of working and um, the, I guess the expectations for what the future might look like. Like it's pretty clear that direction, whereas even with VC, you don't necessarily know what's going to happen after the acquisition and you've got new directors and, and, and all of this things can very quickly pivot to something that is completely different to what you had in mind. Um, not necessarily better either. So, um, that's really good. Now I, um, was lucky enough to be able to come out to the offices, um, in, in December. So thanks for having me out there. But one of the things that you said while I was there, um, was, Uh, like we were talking about talent attraction and you were sort of saying about rewarding the best people with the best environment, which I loved. Um, And and this sort of linked for me to another statement that you had, which was uh, culture is expensive. Um, I I might throw to you on that culture is expensive one to to sort of elaborate a little bit and give us a bit of insight to what you mean.
0: I think one of the things that uh, the original uh, founders of Ferocia really got right was investing heavily in culture and if it, it often doesn't seem like a tangible investment if it's just okay Friday afternoons we're all having some unstructured time with each other just you know basically socializing playing pool things like that or um, you know we're gonna go have lunch together as a team and I say culture is expensive because there's always I think in general a, a point where companies start counting all of that when they want to tighten their belts and they say wait a minute, um, if we just chained people to their desks a little bit longer, we could probably eke out a few more percentage points of return for our shareholders or something like that, which yeah. no doubt sounds perfectly rational, but what you lose is that, uh, I guess, space for the team to really build trust by getting to know each other as humans. And that that simply requires time. And it, it also requires endorsement from leadership to say this is an important thing that we value and it requires leaders to lead by example so that's that's something that leaders in ferocia have have always done very well is always signaled very strongly that no this is exactly what we want you to be doing we want you to be playing mario Kart on the switch or we want you to be playing pool on a Friday afternoon because quite frankly and whether it's conscious or not there's huge business value in it that that trust that gets built between teams causes everything for the rest of the the week or the month or the year to to go faster. People communicate better. Teams talk to each other better. Issues are raised in a in a, a more um, constructive way. It's it's just it all adds together to I guess an invisible value that I think smart companies don't miss. And there's obviously a, a A trail of of large successful tech companies that you know clearly believe that if you invest a lot in things like that you'll get the return but i still think it takes a certain level of enlightenment in um i guess today's workplaces to really believe it and and put your money where your mouth is and invest in culture in your teams like that
1: Yeah, I think that when you're sort of saying um, like reward the best people with the best environment as well, it it has like a connotation of um, the existing people rewarding the existing, like the people that already work with the organization. So it both works as a talent attraction model to have such a desirable workspace with cool perks and everything like that from the outside. But a lot of those things you don't understand until you're in the business. And it makes it a reason why you want to stay. Um, And I think that that's often another part that companies maybe miss in terms of understanding the value of investing in those things is that it doesn't cut a cost or add a person that they couldn't have attracted beforehand in. What it does is it saves money later that you didn't know that you were going to have to spend it. It means that you get somebody that goes, I'm not... I'm not open to jobs. When a recruiter reaches out, they're not even considering and and don't want to hear about anything. Um, They're very, very happy. Um, Versus the, you know, pay the person as much as you need to to get them in the door. Don't offer that stuff internally. And the next time a bigger pay packet comes around, maybe they're interested in that as well.
0: Exactly. And I'd also say that I think that the perks are the people. So the perks are the people around you and all of the other things are just mechanisms to hang out with the people. So I like to think it's a a virtuous cycle. If you're attracting committed and capable people to your organisation, then that's exactly the thing that attracts more committed and capable people to your organisation. And so it's more about how do you create space and provide venues for people to just hang out with people. Um, And, of course, they're, they're, they're doing a combination of, they're not going to not talk about work and how things can be better, et cetera, et cetera, but also, um, just, I guess, becoming becoming mates, you know. Yeah, yeah. yeah,
1: yeah. That there's a there's a level of uh, as you, you've used the word trust a lot, but there's that level of trust that you have in people that you respect and want to spend time with, and you want to invest more in. Um, and it does sort of mean like it's not a, the, the, providing the culture isn't a, we'll do this for you if you do this for us type of arrangement. It's more just trusting that, um, if you set up everybody to enjoy their work and their life and, and the people that they spend time with as much as possible, that they'll want to make that whole thing successful together for everybody, not, not necessarily just for themselves. So, um it, it's definitely a virtuous cycle um that is maybe hard to get into if you didn't start that way i think a lot of people would be afraid of taking that first step into going you know that's not the way our culture is right now and we're going to revolutionize our culture by investing a lot in people having more things and more time to to hang out rather than more time on the tools as you sort of said
0: yeah, I, it's a very interesting problem how to how to convert a culture. We definitely had the luxury of uh, it was it was something that we laid the groundwork on in, on day one. Um, but I think it, it it's a slow process to change any culture. It's it's one one mind gets changed at a time about what's what's valuable and what's not valuable, and it, it definitely has to start from the top. It has to start from leadership when it comes to culture because people role model what their boss does and what their boss's boss does. And, um, there's a, there's a, um, very, very famous example of, of good role modeling in our organization. We'll never see our CEO Xavier at, at, at the desk, uh, after five o'clock. Like it's, yeah. it's a very specific thing that he, he goes to great pains to never do because if a leader does that, sure enough, uh, People on their team will start doing that then people on their teams will start doing that and the talk about work-life balance becomes just talk rather than you know
1: walk yeah it's not about um it's not about permission in in these types of environments as well where it's like you know the ceo says you can leave um whenever you want usually people work till five but you can leave whenever you want if the ceo is there till seven the permission doesn't matter um the, there's a, a there's a, like an impo- imposition um upon people that you know that's a that's what a that's what a leader or a real um a worker does uh rather than sort of as you sort of said living those things um and it's also not to say um that it's, there'd be people that would be listening thinking oh yeah but i bet that that person goes and jumps on email later that night and does an extra couple of hours It's also not to say that's necessarily a a a, a guaranteed thing either. Like as in, that's there are there are businesses that are really good at having their people be able to time box their time, work really efficiently within those times, um, and make decisions quickly, um, make smart decisions quickly by you know speaking to the right people, keeping everything quite small, where you don't have to do those ridiculous things.
0: Exactly, and my theory is even if. Even if we did do that, it's actually getting the signaling to the team that's the most important thing. And, yeah. you know, getting the job done is also very important as well. But, um, you know, we, we take great pride in trusting everyone to to know exactly what that balance is for them. And just sending out the right signals that we are absolutely not expecting you to break yourself. We want everyone to be here for the long haul, building building a team that should be here for another 10 years. So yeah, really take care of yourself.
1: Yeah, that's great. Um, the uh, I think it was someone who I quote quite a lot in Ray Dalio, but um, saying hire people that you want to spend the rest of your life with. Um, it's a, again, really quick visual as to what you should be looking for when you're hiring and building a team. And um, I was thinking about this recently in relation to Rosewood partners, which um, obviously at the moment is is me and, and Julian only. Um, but I was thinking, you know, if, we're going to be growing a business. I want people to be thinking from the start, maybe not from maybe not from the first time they hear about the business, but I, I really want them to be thinking, I, I can see myself being here in 10 years' time, not I'm going to accept this job, let's see how it goes, the type of thing. Um, so, yeah, I'm going to have to obviously take some lessons from these more successful businesses like you guys as to how to actually make that uh, happen.
0: I think I always... Um, Planned for being around another 10 years. Every hire we make, uh, there's, no, there's no sense of urgency with we need to get someone in the door right now. It's yeah. how do we slowly build the right team over time? Um, we have a luxury of being a bank. They are pretty good when it comes to longevity and yeah. um, uh, have a bit of a leg up when it comes to making money. So uh, that long-term view, I think is perfectly appropriate for for someone in our industry, especially after we've, we've gone through the turbulence of the first five years as a, as a digital bank. And now it's how do we, how do we set the scene for the next 10? And I think people are the most important thing. So if we hire someone, for example, and, and they're the best fit for our team and they say, well, look, I, I, I wouldn't mind going for some travel and starting in six months. Like that's a perfectly normal conversation for us because it's not about right now. It's about, Who's right,
1: yeah, that's I mean, did you guys have that as I guess like a learned experience as well, because I'm assuming that maybe some of the earlier times during the growth period there might have been a few highs where it was we really need to get people in the door, and that's usually when you do see mistakes are made when there's that sort of added time pressure. Did any of that happen, or was it pretty solid from the start
0: surprisingly i don't i don't I don't think that was ever something that we felt. That's great. We, we, we were very deliberate about growing sustainably. In the first, I guess, in the first eight years of Ferocia, um, we'd hire on average maybe one or two people a year, maybe three. And yep. then we did burst quite hard when Up uh, started going uh, gangbusters. So in around, around the start of COVID, actually. And um, I think by that point, we really... Had a wealth of great candidates for anything we were hiring for. We we had a fanatical customer, we still do have a fanatical customer base who um, was actually a great source of recruiting as well. Because a lot of people, nearly everyone we talk to who comes through um, uh, our, our recruiting process, is a customer who loves the product and the brand and yeah. what we stand for. Um, and even if we did hire faster than ever in the last Few years there was never any sense of the the quality of people or the the skill level or anything like that was was something we were compromising on. We're absolutely proud of every single person. That we yeah, that's great. Yeah,
1: no, that's really good. Um, that's probably more something that we see um, uh, in in recruitment area. Um, you do find that a lot of people clients are really willing to talk to you when their hiring has become such a problem for them that they're in a rush and now they just need somebody else to sort of take care of it. Um, Whereas, yeah, we end up in the same sort of situation where they obviously need the person to start, but it's like, well, the best candidate has three weeks of holidays planned at the end of this period of time as well. It probably makes sense for them to start in two, three months. Um, Like, Mm. do you want the best person in two to three months or do you want somebody else now? Um,
0: It doesn't mean we wouldn't necessarily get back out there and, and and say okay we'll we'll fill this role but we'll still take the person who isn't available right now for in yeah. the time period they say but yep. I think I think the main area in up where we've had the most I guess pressure to grow fast has been in our customer support as okay. we race through you know customer numbers from you know 150,000 after a couple of years to um, around 800,000 now um, but even then, the huge advantage with how we've done everything is that we don't actually need that many people. So we've got now, I believe, around 50 customer support staff to support 800,000 customers, Yeah, which is more than an order of magnitude more efficient than any other bank that we are aware of. And that's, that's a luxury. So we don't have to go out and hire 500 people. Yep. We can over a period of, of a few years hire 50, which is fast for us, very fast for us, but Again it's not a, a situation where we've got either some crisis that requires massive hiring or um, you know some businesses quite rationally go if we can hire 40 engineers tomorrow we'll make a billion dollars. Great you know that it makes sense for them to to have a different approach to hiring but that's certainly not the situation we're in.
1: Yeah no that's great. Um, I move on now to some of the other topics that we um, we wanted to touch on. Um, one of the things, and I've heard this from a couple of good leaders now, um, you sort of talked about optimizing for good team balance um, when you're recruiting. Um, and I think that idea of team balance is, um, is really, really important. And it's maybe often forgotten um, when, when people are looking to hire. They're, they're sort of considering each hire out as an individual, which everyone is, but rather than thinking about it as a part of the team that's already formed, um I guess how do you go um uh, sort of approaching that challenge of getting good team balance?
0: I think a key part of it is making sure that whenever you're hiring for a role the main criteria is who's going to make the team stronger. So I don't I don't think it makes sense to just consider some abstract individual merit that you know probably results in you know if you look at the the memes around politicians all being you know White, grey-haired males in their fifties and sixties in some countries—it's like okay, there's clearly there's clearly something that's not balanced here. So does another person who's exactly the same make that team stronger? Probably not. And so you know whether it's um, you know different different skills or different backgrounds or different different um, experience, I think the team is stronger through diversity. And so that is generally at the moment, relatively in an informal balance around how how well do we know all of our people? You know, this team, maybe it doesn't have someone who's uh, really strong on databases and we can balance internally, or we can also say um, we're going to hire someone. But one of the things we've not yet been big enough to do um, is to say we're just going to hire specialists for every role. So we've been hiring generalists. You're a software engineer or you're a, you're a customer support person. Um, and... When you do that, it's important to understand, I guess, the, the talents and, and passions of those generalists and make sure you've got a big variety of them. So, or and also be aware of which ones you're missing. So um, for example, you know, we, we know we're gonna have to um, have a lot of scalability in our database yeah. uh, over the years. That's a problem every company has when they grow. Um, we haven't hired a role that is specifically you're going to come to work every day and only care about the database. But you know, we've hired a few people that are like I live and breathe databases. I love it. And you're also uh, a generalist. So we don't end up with this situation where um, the winds change in what our mission is or what we're doing or, you know, the the industry and we're left with people who are so specialized that we can't reuse them for whatever's next. So I think that, approach of hiring generalists is really powerful for if you want to be agile as a company and that does just require paying extra attention to the things that aren't so obvious and we achieve that through I guess a, a really good approach to um, you're focusing strongly on, on good middle management so you know our engineering managers take their job seriously we have leaders all across the company really focusing on being leaders rather than just being really good at the job that the people in their teams do yeah and when with, with that sorted there's a really good way of us knowing exactly what's beneath the covers of our relatively similar job descriptions in our teams
1: yeah is there a way that you uh go about identifying um good generalists it, like as in is it something that you do actively in the approach um, or is it more something that generally the the stronger people that emerge for you guys are generalists?
0: There's definitely a bit of both in our approach. For example, we've never posted a job ad that says front-end developer or back-end developer, it's software engineer. And the mindset being, if we're hiring who we believe to be great software engineers, we also believe that the, the core skill set is being able to learn new things. And, you know, if we've got a whole stack of technologies that people have never used before, that's not necessarily as much as a problem as other companies might think. I don't think we've ever hired someone who knew everything about everything we do. So yeah. um, what we're really talking about in the interviews is, um, you know, eagerness to learn. You know, we, we, we know they're probably familiar with a few things we do, you know, are you interested in, in learning TypeScript or Ruby or databases or, you know, cloud engineering? Um, and I think it's usually the case where people who are really eager to learn and capable of learning quickly have a track record of doing it. So there's, there's generally um, lots and lots of giveaways when talking to people or when looking through, um, you know, their, their work history or achievements to say, oh, okay, this person learns very quickly and will adapt to anything that comes and i think that's what i see in common in in people who are good generalists and i think a lot of a lot of um generalists are pretty cautious about getting pigeonholed into something specific because yeah enough time and they want to learn the next thing and that that's just really powerful because over time especially if you can retain your great people you get such a strong capability in your team where you're not in a situation like I'm sure a lot of companies end up with. With oh, we need to do a new thing. We need to hire a new person. Um, yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah. The, you see, you see that. The other thing you see, and the, the other thing is probably more associated with very large companies. But you do see with very large companies that have lots of specialists. They have the need to retrain a large portion of the workforce when things move, rather than already having people who are incredibly flexible, um, already have a little bit of everything and, and you know that they're going to be able to pick it up pretty quickly by doing rather than having to completely reskill. Um, yeah, no, I like that. A track record of learning is good. Um, there there are things that you can try to do as a recruiter to identify that. We obviously have less time with people um, than, than maybe the company does. So we, we often meet them for, maybe hour, hour and a half before they start interviewing with the company. But you know, people have got good track records of progression, taking on roles with different technology stacks or with different fields um, so that you can go, okay, then the person can apply what they were doing with medical products. And then they're doing it with an airline and then they're doing it in a health business. Okay. They're, not, they're not stuck with context. They can sort of understand different contexts and how to apply different things. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, Next topic was, um, I guess, getting great outcomes from team members via maximizing autonomy. Mm -hmm. Those are your words, Um, and I'm a massive believer in this. There's another great line um, in a book I can't remember the name of it, but it's effectively was that we corrupt our people with autonomy. Um, So, like, they give them so much autonomy that they never want to leave. And I I guess, how, how do you guys go about? Um, I guess, managing to maximise that autonomy with different team members?
0: Yeah, it's a good question. I think um, a lot of my my thinking these days is how do we keep the essence of what was strong about being a small company as we become a bigger company? And I think when we're a smaller company, autonomy could be relatively unchecked. You throw a problem at someone and they'll come back with a solution. And that isn't necessarily um, something that, scales well as you need more people working on more problems and collaborating. So I think the the most important thing um, on my mind is how do we keep this autonomy but also have it so that our team members, uh, you know, got more um, passion about taking everyone on the journey with them. So we've got a whole bunch of bright people, but I see in bigger organisations, um, you know, ideas have to come from the top. And I'm I'm a big believer that you know talent and uh, IQ points or you know creative juices aren't aren't distributed in specific places in any organization. They're everywhere. And you know you hear about companies like Toyota who get really good at harnessing all of the thoughts and ideas from everyone in the organization. And I think that's really powerful. So as we as we get bigger as an organization, you know, trying to avoid that trap of oh, there's the thinkers and the doers. Um, and making it so that aligning everyone with the the company mission and, and you know the mission of the teams around them, um, and and everyone agreeing to a general, here's how we're going to get after this, uh, that lets us direct the autonomy of our team members in the right direction, and I think a big a big part of um, being effective when you're autonomous as a team member is, I think is a phrase our CEO coined, um, radiating intent. We coined it in ferocious at least. So it's not about asking permission. It's about radiating intent. So I'm going to do this thing. Um, If anyone thinks this is not the right thing to do, you know, let me know, but I'm not going to wait for everyone to say yes. And I think that's the perfect balance of being fast, but also um, being collaborative. So I see a lot of, Larger organizations get stuck on, oh, we need 10 sign-offs to do a thing. And that's sometimes important in, you know, decisions of, of, of large magnitude. But when it comes to the day-to-day of you're given you're given problems to a team and you want them to solve them, if you're interested in how they're going about it, they, they should be radiating, you know, how it's going. But other than that, um, let them get at it.
1: Yeah. No, I, I mean, I love that phrase. Um, so I will steal it. Uh, no, it's, it's good because it's sort of, uh, as you said, it puts the, I think anything that puts the accountability on the individual, um, it's not that you need to be asked in order to say what you're doing or what you're thinking or the direction you're going to take something in, it's your responsibility to share, um, what you're thinking, the direction you're going to take things in and give people. I mean by by doing that you're giving people the permission to collaborate with you because the person that has doubts will raise them at that time because it's they've got to radiate their intent which is well i don't agree with that Um, and here is uh, you actually get to flesh out all of those problems quite um quite proactively and yeah no i i I really like that as well and it is a problem that you do see with a lot of organizations as well as you sort of said that top-down approach for where the thinking is done I think the other side of that, um, when you were talking about, uh, you know, doers don't sit in one spot and thinkers in another or something is, I think it's important for everyone to be able to do both of those things. Um, There doesn't come a point in the organization, even though you might have a role, like you sort of said, you focus on middle management, you might have some roles that are really focused on leadership. It doesn't mean that those people are no longer doers. They're doing a different thing, but you have to be able to still deliver you can't be a person that only passes things down and waits for it to get back up to you before you report on it to the level above you then you're what is a very traditional middle manager in a very big company um where they can like that is a maybe a negligent role if, if you improve your reporting mechanisms that person is just filtering reporting in different directions
0: I agree i don't I only believe that you can be very innovative in software engineering with a great team, but you can be very innovative in leadership in a great team. So we definitely expect our, our managers to do a fundamentally different role than the, the individual contributors on our teams. But at the same time, they bring great ideas to that role. And we're reinventing how things in that space work as well. So um, I also just see that their primary job as as leaders in the company, as empowering everyone else, because once you get to a certain number of people, it doesn't just work automatically. It requires conscious effort to, you know, keep everyone pointing in the same direction, or to provide clarity on, you know, what 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 the mission is, what the strategy is, to make sure that um, teams are collaborating healthily, or that there's not you know duplication or gaps in in work, and that's. That's just it. Gets more and more important as the team grows, and companies that sort of skip that investment in good leadership and management, um, I don't think that they end up succeeding as they as they scale. Some of them famously do, but in general, um, I think it's less common than yeah, investing in that.
1: Yeah, no, no, I yeah, I totally agree, and, and it's never too late to start making that your number one priority, if you're investing in people development is to make sure that your leaders, uh, they understand how to lead is the first one. Um, and they're sort of given clear direction and accountability on what that leadership looks like. Um, and then that they are actively doing it. Um, because you, you do often find that there are multiple levels of a organizational chain where, there's not really management happening Uh, like as in there's a lot of inactive managers who are people that have been promoted just because they were good at their job and now they're just still doing that and they're sort of telling others what to do from a layer or two above but not really understanding how they can improve the team that they have and and grow that so yeah that's that's a that's a good one um I do want to understand this stuff is probably slightly more linked to the active recruitment stuff um I guess when you guys go into an interview, what do you sort of see as the the most important thing that you're trying to learn from that interview?
0: It's a good question. I think it boils down to me to two key things: humility and curiosity. And with those, I think um, a candidate's in really good stead to to succeed at anything they do, but um, that willingness to learn, that willingness to to um, feed off of everyone around them, you know, to absorb to absorb new knowledge, you know, that, that requires an acknowledgement that you don't already know everything. You know, that's the humility. You know, I've, I've got a lot that I could learn around here and I've got a lot of people I can learn it from. Um, and it doesn't, it doesn't matter who you are in nearly any job, that's always going to be true. As If you don't think you can learn from the people around you, you probably don't know them well enough. And that's part of the whole equation too. Um, and the curiosity is just, uh, I think, essential for a role in in a technology company. The, the the landscape's never static. The technologies are always changing. The you know we've got um, people looking at uh, AI, machine learning stuff now that um, you know wouldn't have been a thing ten years ago, even five years ago for a lot of it. So you can't sit on your laurels and you know grind out a crying out a job for a career if you're not curious in this industry?
1: Yeah, I, I think especially about the um, – that go, that goes for everything, not just technology, but it has to be about – maybe it's about like a subject matter um, or an area that you're trying to pursue because that happened – like so I, by trade, am a chemical engineer and the first job was in a big engineering firm. Um, and to be honest, I'm not – like with the exception of like – computer games and podcasts and things like that, which I do still today, I'm not that curious about engineering. Um, And the people that I saw thriving around me, some of my best friends now, were always talking about, you know, whether it was something they had learned on their job or they were talking about cars or new technology that was sort of breaking through and always sharing this stuff. And I just never had that. Um, But the things that I was passionate about I started moving more and more toward. Um, so the things that I found myself spending all of my time and attention to being curious about, I did more and more of, and that, that's how I've sort of ended up being, you know, running a podcast and starting a business and being in recruitment. Those are all things that I care about and am curious about, regardless of whether I'm doing this or not. If I, if somebody forced me to do another job, I'd be studying this sort of stuff because I find it interesting. Um, so that curiosity about, The area, the space that you're in, is really, really important.
0: That yeah, that resonates a lot with me. My um, I've got a I've got I've got a bit of a bias towards career changes. Oh yeah. It's it's always it's always to me delightful to meet people who have who've gone uh, down the path of another career and but they've always just loved software engineering and they've done it and then they've they've reached a point in their life where they've taken a plunge. You know, they're they're saying all right, I'm going to give it a go. We've, we've got actually got a couple of um, dentists on our team. We've got someone who, was, um, who had a, a, a big career um, as a travel agent, you know, and it's funny when uh, the perspective that those careers give you, like, for example, if you're dealing with customers' travel problems all day, you know, there's not much that's going to fluster you um, in an office full of people you enjoy being around and are kind and friendly. Yeah. Um, and it just signifies to me that... Um, they are fully committed to this, this new thing that they've embarked on. And that's not to say that we don't get great candidates that have just come straight through the, the standard pathways. Yep. Um, but I guess a lot of people who, they finish school, maybe they go to university and they, they study um, you know, computer science or similar topics, um, they might actually hit a point in their career where they're career changing to something else. But I always figured the second career, is um, way more likely to be the one that the person's passionate about because you don't know exactly what you want to do when you're young and there's lots of factors in it, but you do by the time you've changed careers, I think.
1: Yeah, I agree, Um, especially if you're treating the career changes, you're pivoting towards more and more things that you – like you're sort of feeling it out and you're starting to make those small adjustments in the right direction. Um, And, yeah, I I think that, as you sort of said, there are a lot of factors as to why somebody – could end up in a, their first career um, but having the courage to take that plunge and say, this is the thing that I want to do and it's different and I'm willing to learn from everybody again because I know that I don't know anything, um, yeah, really, really valuable. Um,
0: and and I've, I mean, I hear horrific story after horrific story of, of, of women who have gone through traditional pathways in university and tech subjects and the amount of, I guess, Parts of that um, pathway that are designed to talk people out of, of proceeding if they're if they're a woman. Um, sometimes they get start off in another career, but it's it's actually um, women that we see a lot of. Okay, this is this is my second career as well. So, you know, with the uh, I guess there's been the gender imbalance in, in tech for a long time, and I think um, you know being really um, safe, a really safe place for people who are changing career to come into is, is, a, is a really powerful thing to address that.
1: Yeah, I, I agree with that. And like, I mean, having been in the technology space myself, um, my wife is also from the technology space um, as our first careers. You often saw that, as you sort of said, there are so many exit points um, sort of shoved in the face of um, women or people from uh, other minority groups um, throughout their journey t- towards being a technical specialist or whatever they they wanted to be, um, and whether it's you know really simple things from um, there's two positions and they give the more technical role to the the man and the less technical role to the woman and that sort of thing plays out over a period of time until it's ready for promotions and one person's got a lot more technical experience than the other and it it comes down to well we're not making a Bias decision here. It's it's all about experience, but that's sort of been playing out the whole time. So I, I understand exactly what you mean in terms of that career change part being, I guess, super important um, with people uh, maybe from a less traditional background. Just because it it sort of shows an even stronger level of preference um, in in their sort of decision there.
0: Yeah, and I love the idea of um, you know we don't necessarily get the large data effect yet but i've heard from people who've worked in bigger organizations that if you've got great data around um you know the careers of your staff members etc some companies have found that uh, women get promoted um, two and a half times slower than men and that sort of um, stuff can be invisible until you start measuring it so that's that's something that you know we're we're only fledgling you know, with, with a relatively small team, but something we pay very close attention to.
1: No, that's great. Um, I guess how has your approach to hiring people changed over time?
0: <laughs> that's a great question. Uh, in every way possible. So, <laughs> <laughs> so we uh, we basically hired um, without without ever advertising or without ever saying that we um, had any roles available for the first. Seven or eight years of Ferocia, it was um, purely on referrals and people who have worked with people before, and the benefit of that was, uh, I think, a really, a really easily gelled type team that um, was very similar in a lot of ways, including nearly exclusively being male. Um, and I would like to say we're, our three most popular demographics were were men in their twenties, men in their thirties, and men in their forties. But um, <laughs> <laughs> um, and we we really um, well eventually realized that 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 just doesn't scale. It doesn't scale yeah. at all, and that's not how you get the best outcomes. So the things that we changed um, in the last couple of years to to make it so that we're much more accessible as a workplace and much um, uh, more publicly visible that hey we're hiring, we've got roles is even just writing even just writing job ads and putting them yeah. out the um, right. You know, making sure that we actually better define the position like in the first first eight years of ferocia hey you want to come work and be a software engineer and that was pretty much the extent of the job description yeah um, and you need to have a really um certain type of mindset for that to be attractive i had it everyone i worked with at the time had it but of course you're only you're only targeting a small part of the um potential potential candidate field people yep. are really comfortable with that level of uncertainty Um, we uh, also we started um, being very conscious about reaching out even wider like I I talk about team balance um, and I've never thought about things in terms of oh we must we must hire this many type of this people or this many type of this people it's more like who's going to make the team stronger and we've got to cast a very wide net so that means doing a lot more than just posting a job ad but reaching out to you know groups or forums or Um, places where, um, you know, there's people that wouldn't normally come across your roles, um, hanging out, um, tapping into other people's networks if they're already from an underrepresented group, for example. Um, And then uh, also focusing a lot on uh, career frameworks and and how that works, um, knowing that a lot of people find that very important uh, for very good reasons. And a lot of small companies don't get around to, to really make anything tangible in that space until they reach a, you know, probably a post startup size. Um, and so that's been a big focus, a lot of focus on um, making sure that we're we're on pay fairness so that we've yep. got a, a very easy to explain, way, easy to explain way of, um, determining people's salary and how that corresponds to levels or what those levels mean, um, when, when pay reviews will happen, how promotions happen, all those sorts of things um, uh, are are all changes from the early days. Um, Just, I guess the theme is adding a lot more clarity. And I think um, that that clarity helps a a bunch of candidates who need that clarity uh, feel Feel like they could have a home in Ferocia, which to me just means we're casting a wider net to get the people who will make the team stronger.
1: Yeah, that's a, I mean, that's all really good. And I do do still find, even though we work with a lot of, you know, mid sized, quite large businesses that, that already have things written like position descriptions and all of that, that they still don't quite do the thinking to write. Maybe why am I hiring this role now or what specifically is driving this particular decision? Um, Because, you know, you read the position description and then the candidate gets into an interview and all the manager is talking about is this project. And they don't know anything about the project. They haven't been inspired by the project or anything. They've been thinking about the business as a whole. Um, When the real driver behind this hire is, We've, we've got obviously years worth of work to come, but the big thing we want to focus on over the next two years is this really meaty and exciting project. And you need to understand that as the individual, because that's if that's going to be your job for the first couple of years, you've got to have that clarity. As you sort of said, not got to, it's easier to get more people interested if you've got that clarity.
0: Yeah, I agree. And and I'm definitely guilty of, um, you know, having a, a mindset uh, for a long time of if you just collect great, people um they'll add to the team and they'll 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 find the place where they're they're contributing the best and that to be fair that that got us a long way but it actually um starts to to add less clarity to the rest of the team if um you know we're 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 recruiting someone because they got in touch even though we didn't have a roll-up and um the obvious question is well what are they what are they going to do and you need a good story there. Otherwise, yes. um, I don't think you're setting everyone up for success. So it, it, even if that just means that, great, you've, you've got a very exciting um, person getting in touch that uh, you think, oh, great, it's very rare for people of this caliber to, to come knocking on a door. But step one is to actually really have a think about what role that you even even if you're creating one that you'd create for someone with those skills. Yeah, And then the most important thing is to actually put it back out onto market. Yeah. Otherwise, you'll fall into the same trap that we we fell into in um you know when we're just hiring from referrals, which um, didn't end up scaling. But I would still believe it was um it was probably um, pragmatic at the time. But it's not something that we'd do again. It's just um you know assuming that the, the the first person that you you get a referral from from someone working with you is is the best person for the role. And it doesn't mean they're yeah. not a good person. It's just you're not really living the values of um. You know, finding the strongest candidate for the role if you're not looking around for any role.
1: Yeah, no, that, that's that's the biggest one, isn't it? Which is, as you sort of said, it's you've got one data point. If you've got one referral, um, even if it's a great data point that you go, yeah, this, this looks really like what I'm looking for. You don't even have just the brains of the rest of the people on the team yet to say, actually, I know somebody excellent for this role too. Uh, or somebody putting their hand up and saying, I've been waiting for this opportunity to come up at your company because I love what you do and I've just been waiting. And and that's as simple as, as you sort of said, chucking it out to market just for a short period of time, making sure that you're still not going to drag the other person along, um, but that you do have enough time to actually get enough information to go. I think we're making the right decision at at this time.
0: Yeah, and I think it's a pretty easy story um, to the team where, oh, but this person's fantastic. It's like, great, we'll probably decide they're the best candidate then. But, you know, going through the process is is an important part of it.
1: Yeah, totally. Two questions that I always say to wrap up. What is one lesson that your career has taught you that you think everyone should learn at some point in their life?
0: The one lesson I, I like to pass on is never say no to an opportunity. So um, I've had a long and winding path from uh, joining the military at 18 spending 10 years there to where I am today and it was really exclusively from saying yes to every opportunity that came up so uh, I highly recommend it if people have that sort of appetite for uncertainty
1: yeah that's you're right that is a lot of uncertainty but um, it definitely helps especially if you're not afraid of going sideways or what feels like slightly downwards or anything like that, you're just going, I could see this being something cool. Um, You you end up finding areas that you like pretty quickly. Um, And the the final question that I always like to ask is um, just to try to give people a a tangible takeaway, something that they can do the next time that they interview someone or read a CV or go to try to hire somebody. What's one thing that they can do maybe differently uh, to improve their hiring outcomes?
0: that's a good question Uh, i would say um, be very mindful not to underestimate how good someone can be when their resume isn't shiny and sparkly and 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 perfectly written by a professional resume writer Um, a big reason for that is because if you know english isn't a first language for some people or might even be a third or fourth um, things that people who have, have um, grown up as native speakers think, oh, that's a sign of of someone who doesn't communicate clearly. It's actually just um, it's just it's, it's nothing in the scheme of things. Some of the most brilliant people I've ever worked with um, had um, like some of the some of the um, I guess least professionally manicured resumes, and it's about um, really looking past the aesthetics and looking past some of the, um, uh, I guess headline things and, um, looking for some clues that someone's, that someone's actually had a really interesting life that, uh, you definitely want to talk to them about.
1: That's, that's great. Yeah. I think, um, the, the two things that come to mind for me is like, what has this person done? Um, like as in how they necessarily explain it on a piece of paper, might not be as you sort of said setting the world on fire um and the other the other thing is um sometimes the best candidate won't be the best hire and um, when i'm saying the best candidate i mean the one that's you send them an email they fire it back to you immediately they've got the shiny resume they're they're at the interview 20 minutes early and they do, they do a great job throughout it's it's not just to necessarily say well that person's going to be the best because it's not <laughs> about being a great candidate it's about being a great hire um so you need to think about all of the things that make someone great to work with rather than great to interview um and some of those things cross over but yeah if you can fight past all of that and as you sort of said like i mean I'll, there's a lot of times where i see mistakes in resumes and I just call the person and say hey just so that you know this is probably not the way that you would phrase this it's more like this and Oh I'm so sorry I had no idea and it's just a gap of understanding and the, if that's all the thing that was going to hold them back it seems like a pretty arbitrary barrier to put up doesn't it
0: Yeah and I always figure resume readings a bit like um you know trying to work out how much people are taking liberties and so I will say that I do have um advice against any resume that says Know, very strong written communication skills, and then they have typos, or you know, then
1: yeah, great, <laughs> excellent, excellent attention to detail, um, detail spelt incorrectly or something like that, um, yeah, unless it's like this like really funny person, in which case maybe you need to call them to work out why they're making so many jokes in their resume. But um, look, Chris, I'll I'll, I'll leave it there. I do really appreciate it, and I think that there's a lot of really good gems in here for for people who are both building teams. Um, from scratch, but are also trying to look at how they can reframe or reshape um, or reculture. I don't think that's a word, but their their team and their business. So I, I really do appreciate you taking the time to chat to us today.
0: Oh, it's been a pleasure. Thanks, John.
1: Thanks for listening to the podcast. Uh, this and every episode is going to be brought to you by Rosewood Partners, which is the a recruitment agency that i founded based on the idea that recruitment agencies and recruitment in general should be done differently if you'd like to learn any more about rosewood partners you can find us at rosewoodpartners.co i'll include in the show notes a link to my email address the website and my linkedin page if you'd like to connect with me have a great day and thanks again for listening